0: It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We've got the latest security news, and he's going to explain some choices he had to make when implementing Squirrel involving authenticated encryption. That's next on Security Now. Netcasts you love.
1: From people you trust.
0: This This is is TWIT. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now, episode 460, recorded June 17th, 2014. Authenticated encryption. Security Now is brought to you by... ShareFile. Enhance your workflow. Send files of almost any size easily and securely with Citrix ShareFile. Try Citrix ShareFile today. For a 30-day free trial, go to ShareFile.com, click the microphone, and enter Security Now. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com TWIT and use the code SN20. It's time for security now—the show that covers your privacy and security online—with the the man of the hour. You you are you are becoming a hero for security and privacy advocates worldwide, Mister Stephen Tiberius Gibson. <laughs> he's he's planted the flag. And yeah, uh,
1: I, I had a uh, a server at a, at a restaurant the other day said, "Did you coin the term spyware?" I said. Oh. <laughs> What? That's a funny thing for a waiter to ask you. That's great. Well, yeah, I'd gotten to know her, and uh, she said, "Guess who? I guess who was doing some cyber stalking last night?" And I said, "I, I presume it was you, because that wasn't me." She says, "Yes, and guess who was stalked?" Wow! Said, oh, really? So is she? Uh, she
0: is she cute? She got. Oh yeah, she She's she, <laughs> she's obviously she's, got the uh, got an eye for Mister G. I think she likes she, the mustache. She's a dance instructor. Oh,
1: she's completely. Like you know, the, I, t- I keep telling her just get this. Why this moron not put a ring on your finger yet? Because you
0: know. Oh, she's got a boyfriend, she, but. but oh, absolutely. Yeah. She
1: knows who she's going to marry. It's just yeah. sort of a matter of formality, and.
0: So and- I was in Irvine, yeah, a couple of days ago, as was President oh. Obama, by the way, which made it very difficult to get into and out of Irvine.
1: Yeah. In fact, I, the, though we urbanites were like deliberately working to avoid his caravan and he like shut down a whole chunk of the Pacific Coast Highway from yeah. Newport down to North Laguna. I guess presidents have, have always he,
0: done this, but he, but in this post 9-11 era, it's worse than ever.
1: Yep. And of course, he gave the the big presentation to UCI's graduates this year. Uh, And I I, I chatted with uh, one of my Starbucks gals whose husband is a professor at UCI, and she was a little annoyed because he declined the opportunity to have the whole family go and be present because you had to get on a bus at UCI at 6 a.m. in order to start the process of – going through security wow. and all wow. the rigmarole for, you know, what, a,
0: probably a presentation that was in
1: the mid-afternoon. Yeah, so.
0: yeah I think he spoke yeah. at one uh, thirty. So, yeah, uh, yeah um, but nice part of the country. A lot of sun. A lot uh, of sun. <laughs> was- we, have, we, have, we have May gray and
1: June gloom are the two terms that we have. <laughs> Generally, the days start off a little, uh, I guess it's... Um, you know, like overcast from the ocean, a marine layer, as it's called. And then it generally sort of burns off by midday. And, you know, today's just sort of cool and pleasant and very nice. So well,
0: you were down here? Really? I was. Well, I now know why you live there, because you're right next to the Santa Ana Airport, which makes it very easy to get in and out. I suspect that's yep. one of the factors that put you in Irvine. And I know the other one is you're very near Knott's Berry Farm. And that's, uh, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's where we were. Oh,
1: yeah, baby. Oh, oh baby. Oh. I am a roller coaster fanatic. Though. Well,
0: that I is like, do. I've never seen so many roller coasters in one amusement park in my life. It's the strangest thing because it's the oldest amusement park in America. It was started in the 30s uh, to give people something to do while they waited for their pie. And uh, and now it has the accelerator, which is basically you're, uh, you're shot out of a gun <laughs> straight up in the air. Huh. Uh, of course, Lisa went on and loved it. It's the scariest thing I've ever seen, and they have. That's the most modern, and then they have the same old rickety wood roller coaster with effectively a coal mine car that you're riding in, rattling down the tracks. (laughs) They call they call it the Ghost Rider because it is it is like out of a ghost town Uh, and everything in between. We
1: were were talking about, but Jenny loves roller coasters also, and is it the big is the Big Dipper? In Santa, Santa Cruz? Cruz, that's yes. very much
0: like the Ghost Rider. The Big Dipper is also yes. a timber, and that's the. Frankly, it's interesting you mention it because that is the roller coaster that soured me on the entire experience when I was in high school. <laughs> my girlfriend and <laughs> I the rest went of on your it. Life. No, literally for the rest of my life, I went on it. It yeah. was so terrifying. I fell to my knees on the beach afterwards and said, "Never again." Thank you for saving me, Lord. I will never again, I promise. And I have not been <laughs> on another roller coaster since it was it's well, of course why how could you like that? You're tricking your body into thinking you're falling to your death. What is pleasant yeah. about that? Yeah. And
1: and the technology has just gone amazing i mean you know you 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 see the commercials and these kids are like strapped into these coffins that are then spun through 360 degrees it's not just the ride the car over the bumpy trail anymore
0: right i mean this stuff spins you around and does all kinds of Wacky things to use. Well, and in a way I think those are safer than the than the Ghost Rider, which is I like I said, you're basically in a box on a on a timber uh wood track that's going rattle, 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 rattle. Um whereas these new ones are very smooth, they actually are holding on to rails. Yes. Uh rubber wheels, all kinds of uh, like safety technology. You may not even know you're going anywhere on those. You remember those (laughs) Ferris wheels? Where they
1: put you in a cage, then there was a you had a ring and you like pulled the ring and it would lock the cage's axle to the exoskeleton, and then as the as the Ferris wheel went up, you would no longer be you know you would no longer have your uh, bottom be kept down. Uh, with where gravity was, but it would like you know roll you over, and if you timed it right, you could unlock it at just the right time and swing around. And you oh, you're just like a
0: madman. That's what you I are. I guess I am. Yeah. This is the uh, this is the accelerator. You come out. I don't know what the speed is, but you're, it's hydraulic acceleration out of it that pins <laughs> your head to the back of the seat. And and not, you know and so that that initial shot is what takes you all the way all up the, the way top through of that thing, not just to the top,
1: wow. the whole thing,
0: right? You know the but, whole but, ride. But, you
1: know so so basically you get to the top now you head just down. barely wow. yeah, <laughs> nice. just You know the physics of it must be fascinating. I think that it, well the other thing is really interesting is it absolutely changes the ride whether you're in the front or the back because. You know, from a physics standpoint, the center of the train is is essentially where gravity is having its effect. That is there, you know in, 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 if if you're over a hump, there's as much in front of you as behind you when you're in the center. So the center feels right with like going over a hump. Whereas if you're on the back, the you start accelerating early, and essentially get whipped over the hump and if you're in the front you you are accelerated past the hump and then slow down late anyway obviously so I- which
0: do you prefer the front oh no ah! oh, i think i saw your house uh, just a second it's just it's just a different experience it just you know I, I like it all i'm sad but an experience i shall never have and there there it is
1: so, But you were a good sport, and you did I go with Lisa? I went and Lisa? watched,
0: and Lisa goes on all oh. of them. She loves them. There's another one where you go up like 200 feet, and they just drop you. She loves that stuff. I don't... <laughs> I just I don't enjoy it. Yeah, I'm glad to you see... Know? So do you go to Knott's Berry Farm? You're literally just miles away.
1: No. You've never I, like, I also live next to Disneyland, and I don't yeah. go there either. No.
0: We uh, Well, anyway, I was in your... I should have knocked on your door. I apologize yeah,
1: for Yeah, we have that. the beach.
0: You know, we have the beach. We have you know but mostly i have code i was coding so <laughs> you don't have to be anywhere you you could be anywhere you just That's you know true. it doesn't really matter you're inside jenny most had, of the time jenny has noticed that yeah, you know wherever i am
1: as long as i have something to read or i yeah. can do some work i'm i'm quite happy there so what is the topic
0: of the uh, day today
1: so we're going to talk about a some fundamental technology of the internet we haven't done any fundamental Internet technology for a long time. I want to talk about something known as authenticated encryption. This is, we've danced around this in different contexts. Um, The problem is that at first you would think that encrypting something is all you need to do. And that's true if all attackers are passive that is if all they can do is view what has been encrypted uh, even today's cryptographers agree that modern encryption technology ciphers do an astonishingly good job of obfuscating of, of giving us privacy the problem is we don't in today on today's internet as we know have passive attackers. We have active attackers and 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 malicious hackers who are incredibly crafty at at figuring out how they can get in there and mess with our technology. And what's surprising is that as good as encryption is, if all you can do is look at it, it turns out to be very brittle if you can mess with it if you can change some bits if if you can if you can be active in that our encryption technology crumbles with surprising speed so the again the the smart guys that understood that said okay wait a minute that means encrypting for privacy is not enough we need to authenticate now and, and this is not The kind of authentication we've talked about, like with certificates, where we're authenticating the identity of what we're connecting to. This is we're authenticating that nothing has changed in the message since it was sent. So something is done to it at the time it's sent. And we've talked about signatures, cryptographic signatures, and authenticating, authentication is related to them, but not the same. Because if, if like, something is signed, and again, remember, the, 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 the rule is whatever we're doing will be known. These are published standards. They're open. So if we were just saying, oh, we're going to, you know, use SHA-1 to sign the message— well, the bad guys would know that, so they'd make some changes and then re-sign it with SHA-1 so that the signature was correct again. So we need something more t- to apply to the message to protect it from active attack, and and that's our topic. The, the, there's some interesting history uh, there's some sadness and some happiness, and, <laughs> and I think it's going to be interesting. So that's our main topic. We have uh, and a bunch of obviously actually relatively quiet week. So we'll talk about some fun things that happened during the week, and then plow into some basic internet technology. I think everyone's going to find fascinating.
0: I always enjoy these particular episodes. I think they're so useful. I know a lot of our audience uses them in classrooms and and elsewhere, and. You you could make it a classroom of your own. You could learn uh, if you go through all of our basic technology shows. We should make a, a DVD of just those, just the basic technology shows. It'd be the education and the computer encryption, and you even did how computers work. Yeah, our show today brought to you by Citrix ShareFile, which really is a lifesaver from my point of view. Uh, Citrix uh, has created a way for you to share files. With colleagues, clients, coworkers, I uh, use ShareFile every single week to share radio audio with radio stations, ads, billboards, that kind of stuff. But um, where it really comes from is this idea that in business we often need to send files. I mean, it just is a common part of what you do in business. But as you, as you know, as a Security Now viewer. The last thing you should be doing is emailing attachments. It's not secure. Those attachments can be read along the way. But it also is bad behavior. Um, You know, this is how bad stuff gets spread around the Internet. ShareFile solves this. You're not sending an email attachment. You're sending a secure link to a file. Uh, Your user can click on that link. It's HTTPS. They can verify the, uh, the location. You'll even, you know, have a page that looks like Your company page, your logo's on it. It makes it very easy. They don't have to have a share file account. So it's very professional. It's the way to share files, even with people who are not particularly sophisticated. Uh, SSAE16 Audited Data Centers, AES256-Bit Encryption. You don't get the bounce backs because you can send files, I think, up to... I can't remember the total size. I think more than four gigs. Big files. There's a desktop widget. There's a plug-in for Outlook. Great mobile tools as well. In fact, they just released a new iPhone app that's superb. The way I use it, and there are a variety of ways you can use it, the way I use it is I have ShareFile folders on my desktop that are automatically synchronized to the ShareFile servers. In fact, I'll log into my ShareFile account and show you what that ends up looking like. Um, Then I can either send those files using the iPhone app or using the, uh, you see it's got my logo, which I really like, using the iPhone app or uh, the uh, uh, Android app or the tablet apps I can easily see what files I have here's my uh, folder for the Premier Radio Networks inside I've got uh, audio and if I want to send that audio to them uh, all it's as simple as just check marking a folder or check marking an individual item let's send this to what is this KBNW is probably a uh, hi this is Leo Laporte What I've been told, I listen to KBNW. Now, if I want to send it, I just click the send box. As I said, there's an Outlook plug that makes it look just like an attachment. But remember, it's not. And I can do the email directly in the web interface. Notice, again, our Twit logo and everything. This is branded. Uh, You know, there's a little word that says Powered by Sharefile down here, but that's it. And I like that. I can have these various settings. I can say how long they can download it for, how many times they can download it for. I can uh, password protect it and all sorts of things. Once I uh, say send the file, I'm going to get a – and this is the way I do it because I like to put it in an email from me – a HTTPS secure link uh, with a very long – Uh, unique url let's copy that to the clipboard and paste it in up here so you can see what happens when they get the link they click the link in the email or they paste it in and there it is it's very simple there's a download button it says what kind of file it is couldn't be easier and it it really is better it's secure you control who gets the file when whether they can uh, you know download it forever or just for a day i want you to try ShareFile. go to sharefile.com citrix sharefile go to share citrix sharefile at Sharefile.com, and uh, when you when you go to the website, if you want to try it for free, do us a favor: click the link at the top of the page. that says "Podcast Listeners, Click Here." That's how you can get the word "Security Now" in there as the offer code. Security Now, one word. Spell it right. And do select your industry because they'll customize it to uh, be compliant with regulations in a large number of industries, including financial services, uh, healthcare. And uh, you could try it free for 30 days. Sharefile.com. Citrix Sharefile is easy to use, the business-focused solution for sending, receiving, and sharing files. Sharefile.com. Use the offer code SECURITY now after you click the microphone at the top of the page. All right, Stephen. Let us uh, at least check a little bit of the security news. I know there's not a whole lot to talk about.
1: Yeah, um, not a lot happened, but there was an interesting story that surfaced, and this has been... This has been sort of pending all year. And this is about what happens when a single mining pool of bitcoins acquires too much share of the total network's processing power. Concerns first emerged about five or six months ago, around the beginning of the year because one particular mining pool operator, known as GHash.io, was it it, it was noticed that they had about forty percent of the entire mining power within the entire Bitcoin network, and and so you know, of course we've talked about mining pools before. The idea being that that rather than an individual miner just sitting there with his hopefully fast machine, uh, maybe ASIC-driven hashing engine. And, you know, with it running 24-7, trying to solve the bitco- the current Bitcoin problem in order to win a Bitcoin. Or, uh, let's see, I guess when I won, you got multiple Bitcoins for a single hash. I haven't kept track of, like, where we are on the curve. But as we'll remember from our original podcast... The, the trajectory at which Bitcoins get minted is continually slowing down and sort of asymptotically reaching a known number of Bitcoins that will ever be minted, at which point it, it, it all just now, at, the, at that point, you just transact them. You no longer mine them freshly. But the, the problem with being a solo miner is that you could well spend your whole life especially these days when the the hashing rate has gone up so high that the bitcoin network in the in the autonomous way it has has increased the difficulty in order to keep the bitcoin rate following this exact trajectory that an individual miner has a very low probability of of winning a bitcoin it can happen but again it's about statistics because you're just making guesses and then using the hashing engine to check your guess and if you guess right then then you publish that and that it, it's agreed upon by by other operators within the network and then you end up winning that coin so the what's emerged sort of just uh organically is the idea that an or uh, that individual miners would organize into a mining pool pooling their resources and it'd be it's a function of you know the relative mining power that individual participants in the pool have and the and the agreement is if any of us succeed we will share the winnings prorated based on our processing power. So now in mining pools, the Bitcoins are are being won. And because Bitcoins can be fractionated down to such a tiny percentage, uh, you know, all the miners are getting fractions of a Bitcoin at a relative rate. And so, of course, the word spreads. And it's like, hey, would you rather maybe get one in your lifetime, but probably not any? Or would you rather at least get something, even if not a lot, on a more or less kind of cash flow basis. And so mining mine, mining pooling has, for that reason, come to be very dominant. And also the other phenomenon that has happened is that there's, as is often the case with, with the way systems work where the incentives don't prevent it, the guy who's bigger tends to have advantages uh, to help them get even bigger. And so that tends to create an unstable system where you get a monopoly. And what's happened is this one particular mining pool, ghash.io, at the beginning of the year was was around 39 to 40% of, that is all of the mining equipment, individually owned, and 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 collectively used equaled about 40% of the total hashing power of the bitcoin network at the beginning of the year this week for a chunk of time and 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 I've seen a lot of different reports about them coming and going and how long they stayed but they crossed into 51%. That is ghash.io got the majority of the processing power, this one mining pool of the entire Bitcoin network. And, you know, there are uh, maybe like six or seven other major mining pools. And then, you know, there's a whole raft of, you know, much smaller entities that aren't even, no one's even bothering to track really. So the issue is, is is this the end of the world? I mean, there are there are a couple of networked and distributed computing researchers who have a good reputation at Cornell University, um, who have who run the hacking comma distributed blog, and they first raised the flag at the around the beginning of the year that that this could this was looking like a problem, and in fact they also. Came up with a the the te- the concept of selfish mining, where it's possible for miners with a with a lower percentage to sort of mess up the blockchains of of other mining operators. And you know this has gotten so complicated. I, I, there was a I had a limit to how much time I wanted to spend digging into this because it's gone like way beyond the 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 nice theory of bitcoin that we covered years ago on this podcast when it be, it became clear that bitcoin was something and when i looked at the original white paper i thought this is not only something this is cool um so i've got links in the show notes for anyone who wants to dig more deeply but but there's i, I would say it's controversial whether this re- really represents a big problem. Um, ultimately, I think that the people who say a single miner having the majority of processing power is really a bad idea—they're right. I mean, they're in principle they're right. The whole point of Bitcoin was it was a decentralized virtual currency. It was the decentralization that was key. Well, arguably, we've lost decentralization. One of the fundamental assumptions behind the way the Bitcoin system protects itself is is lost if, if more than half of the processing power is controlled by a single entity. Um, so... What this means is that it could, not that it would, because the arguments against this being a problem are that it would be in that entity's huge disfavor to destabilize the system or to take advantage of this, because there's a lot of auditing technology now in place in the network. And within about 10 minutes, the network collectively would know if there was misbehavior on the part of, for example, ghash.io, um, but but for example, these guys who are really really upset about this, the the Cornell University distributed computing guys with the hacking comma distributed blog, they they, they ask themselves rhetorically in their posting last Friday the thirteenth, um, they said, "Is this really Armageddon?" And they say, "Yes, it is." Ghash is in a position to exercise complete control over which transactions appear on the blockchain and which miners reap mining rewards. They could keep 100% of the mining profits to themselves if they so chose. Some people might say that this is a sensational claim. And actually, there are a lot of people who do, who really think that these guys are a little way out and getting overly alarmist but it's worth I think worth understanding their position and considering their point. They argue it's not. The main pillar of the Bitcoin narrative was decentralized trust. That narrative has now collapsed. If you're going to trust Ghash, you might as well store an account balance on a Ghash server and and do away with the rest of Bitcoin when we'll all save a lot of energy, is their argument. However, there are somewhat less overwrought writers who suggest there are only a couple of things which somebody with a 51% of of the network hash rate computational power can do. They could prevent transactions of their choosing from gaining confirmations. I mean, and that's not good. I mean, that's not something we want, but they're arguing that that doesn't mean the end of the world, and that would make them invalid, those those transactions, potentially preventing people from sending bitcoins between addresses. They could reverse transactions they send during the time they're in control, which would allow double-spend transactions. And they could potentially prevent other miners from finding any blocks for a short period of time. So, there's one researcher, uh, well known in the community, called whose name is Peter Todd. Uh, He's on a he's like on a bunch of advisory boards. He's very philosophical. He's got some neat YouTube videos. He's he's put up where he in some Q and A modes where he clearly demonstrates his his understanding of like where this has all gone. And he sold, when this happened, half of his Bitcoin holdings, mostly because despite being evangelical about this, he's he's an evangelist about Bitcoin, um, he made a solemn promise to himself based on just sort of the theory of destabilization that if this ever happened, he would sell half his holdings. And uh, he's Canadian. and so he said it was in the five figures range, not of bitcoins, I presume, but of probably, you know, uh, you know, in Canadian currency, uh, he liquidated half. Bitcoin itself did suffer last week as a consequence. It was around 650, which is when Peter sold. It crashed about $100. To about 550. And when I looked last uh, yesterday, it, was, it, it climbed back up to 600. So, you know, it took a bit of a hit from other people who both knew that Peter was selling and got scared by what this means. Now, the G hash folks, it's, it's worth noting also that that there's this is an anonymous organization. We don't know who they are. Uh, there's something that calls itself. I think it's cxo.io is like the entity that runs this, but they've gone public with a with a press release in this at, at this time, and they said the headline was Bitcoin mining pool ghash.io is preventing accumulation of 51% of all hashing power. Now. It's worth noting that they didn't prevent it earlier, uh, but I think they're saying they're going to they, – they understand the problem. They're going to act to back off. They said, GHash.io, the world's largest and most powerful mining pool, has entered 2014 with overall hashing power of o- over 40 percent, making it the number one pool currently in the Bitcoin network. Of course, that's, that's now six months old, seven months old, and no longer true. They have hit 51. The pool has gained significant hashing power due to the 0% pool fee, merged mining of altcoins, excellent real-time data presentation, as well as quality 24 365 support service. <laughs> and they said at the time, the hashing power of GHashIO consists of 45% of the Bitfury ASIC-based mining machines in on the network and 55% of that network's independent miners. So this is where people have been flocking. And they finally said, although the increase of hash power in the pool is considered to be a good thing, reaching 51% of all hashing power is a serious threat to the Bitcoin community. GHash.io will take all necessary precautions to prevent reaching 51% of all hashing power in order to maintain stability of the Bitcoin network. So what what the, the powers that be who are, I mean, there's like forums full of techies getting together, talking about what to do. And the, the ultimate solution is known as a hard fork. The idea would be a, that a hard fork would be created, meaning that a, essentially another version of Bitcoin would be created, which has new technology so next generation technology specifically designed to deal with the problems which have emerged as this thing has taken off and you know it's like it had properties that weren't foreseen. Um, for example, it was probably unforeseeable that there would be this kind of monopoly formation. The presumption was it would main be it would maintain its decentralization. Uh, and of course this crazy, rush to uh, to custom hardware, first FPGAs, and then full-on custom um, application-specific integrated circuits, ASICs, in order to, specifically created, just to hash at incredible rates in order to win Bitcoins as that became useful and, and, and worth something. So the idea is that it it looks like it's possible there are a lot of different ideas that are now in the works for how we fix this and what would happen is the uh, a hard fork would be made where essentially that's the the technical term for moving to a next version and the existing blockchain would be imported into this and this is the one that would be used going forward um, without the problems that have been identified and known so far. So just really interesting stuff. I mean, that, you know, the, the when the world actually gets serious about this, um, you get side effects that were not really foreseen by Satoshi uh, and, uh, you know, the early users of Bitcoin. I'm so over Bitcoin. Cool.
0: So yeah, over yeah. it. Yeah, I just feel like... <laughs> yeah. By the way... I think now we can step back and talk about that Newsweek cover story. That was completely fallacious, wasn't it? That wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, that guy they found in your neck of the woods. It does sound like it was not
1: the case. I haven't but heard anything like since it was, then. It's like, not, it just it, you're right. Just it just died.
0: It's like nobody's going to call Newsweek on this and say, "Hey, you ready to retract?"
1: Unbelievable.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, this so, is why we can't have nice cryptocurrencies. That's all I'm saying. Well, it's a
1: challenge. Yeah, I mean it. And now, of course, you, you just look, and there's like 50 of them, and it's like, what you know, Dodge There's some. There's some Tor Coin where uh, I just saw someone tweeted it the other day where Tor nodes would receive virtual currency in payment for for operating nodes based on the how much bandwidth they transited i mean you know we we're, we we're, we're, there's no end of creativity of of ideas um but uh i you know i guess we'll just see how this shakes out i think it's just one more thing that the internet carries uh and that will never die but you're right it'll it'll leave the limelight and it will just become something that people do that generates some news every so often sort of like this yeah yeah and Sort of like Twitter, um, there was a really strange thing happened uh, the other day. And I, I couldn't trace it back all the way to its ultimate genesis. What I heard what I read one in one place was that Tweetdeck had had a modification made to allow it to support emojis. You know, the wacky smiley faces and coffee cups and donuts and hearts and you know the the you know the Apple keyboard and I presume the Android has, you know, access to these emojis which are part of the Unicode character yeah, set. I just and added so they,
0: 218 new emojis to Unicode, didn't they or something like yep, that? Yeah.
1: Yep. So it's been standardized and and the story goes that an australian an austrian sorry an austrian teenager uh who goes by the name of firo f-i-r-o um was experimenting with tweet deck presumably because he knew that it had this new feature trying to get the service to display the unicode red heart character and in the process he f- discovered by accident that Doing that, displaying a red heart at the end of a message, turned off <laughs> or broke or defeated. I don't know what proper verb to use because we don't I don't really understand exactly what happened, but the upshot was cross-side scripting became possible. That is, you know, we've talked about that a lot in a security context. It's Brow- browsers read what they show us that is it's because they read what is sent from a server that we see anything so when there's a you know an open angle bracket you know or the less than symbol then a b and then, then the close angle bracket or the greater than symbol that says bold b means bold in html so Everything that follows until you you cancel the bold is shown in bold. And similarly, fonts and tables and pictures and images and buttons, I mean all everything we're used to seeing on browsers is described in HTML. And and this HTML has the so-called tags, and one of them is script is is you know it's open angle bracket script and then close bracket and any everything in there until you end the script is treated like scripting like an, a language that the browser should execute so the the famous history of cross of of cross site scripting is what happens if you, if a web server or web service ever allows unsanitized text which a user provided to be displayed, and, and this has been hard because that's what forums are, you know, that's what blogs are. I mean, so much of the evolution of the internet is. User provided content, yet it's dangerous, you know. And and, and we've ha- we've had some fun stories here, Leo, and I, I you you'll remember. And in fact, I yeah, even um x uh, uh xkcd has done a comic where where you know the school calls Tommy's parents and say you know your last name is really Drop Table because. You know, they tried to put Tommy Drop Table into their school's database and erased it. Um, So that was the famous
0: sanitize your inputs, XKCD. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So so anyway, what happened was Tommy Drop Tables.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So 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 what happened is something about this heart and that's the funniest thing.
0: he just wanted to write a love letter, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it somehow he discovered that, that it displayed what he wrote. Now, he was a good guy, and so I think he tweeted his discovery, which was his mistake, but then he also tweeted Twitter, and he said, Hey guys, thought you should know, I just discovered that if I put one of your new little hearts at the end of a message, uh, your your cross site scripting filter gets turned off for some reason. So somebody else immediately took advantage of this. They wrote a script that which fit in 140 characters, including that probably two bytes for the Unicode 16 bit art, um, which it was the it was a self-retweeting tweet. So so this little JavaScript would, when it was displayed by TweetDeck, any instance of TweetDeck, TweetDeck would, instead of knowing, never to display this uh, content in the script... That broke. So it displayed it. In the process, the browser executed the tweet and the tweet basically said retweet. So so what it looked like is that it, it, it was a tweet or a Twitter worm because with no on with no action required by the user, this thing, when received by TweetDeck, would retweet it to all of the followers of that account. Th- all of th- those people who were running TweetDeck would would with again with no action re- cause it to be retweeted to all of their followers. And so you could see this just geometrically exploded onto the internet or across well, the good a- news across is Twitter.
0: Not everybody. In fact, not very many people use TweetDeck. Yes. <laughs> so.
1: Yes, and so so it, so that was it limited its reach as yeah. far as that went. Um, so uh, still uh, bad.
0: Yeah. There was no there was like, no malware involved though. It just was a involuntary retweet.
1: No need to change your account. Yeah. Don't change your passwords. It was just a tweet that was empowered to retweet itself, and. Clearly, that's not something that Twitter intended. No, Uh, and and it's a nice. It's sort of what what I liked was it was a it was such such a clean, perfect example of of some of the ways that our technology is just. I mean, it's it wasn't well designed. You know, yes, thank goodness for scripting because it allows so much more of the web than we would have if we were still delivering you know the original static do nothing web pages uh the you know of, of version one of the way the web was was put together um scripting is vastly powerful but there's a fundamental problem when when you're sharing the medium uh for Execution with the the with the message essentially with the content you 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 have to be extremely careful about what you are displaying and what you're executing and unfortunately the way this has all evolved the code is carried with you know with the content and this is what happens if we make a mistake and of course Unfortunately, all kinds of damage has been caused historically by by simple mistakes of, of this kind. And so we just saw another brief one uh, a couple of days ago to remind us essentially, you know, make sure, make sure that doesn't happen. And it had, you know, that, those protections were always there, but something about the red heart at the end just sort of said, ah, well, you know, who knows? <laughs> Don't worry about it. I got a kick out of another story, Um, uh, and that is, actually, this is directly posted by Microsoft in their Windows Azure Azure, Azure blog. Azure. Um, Azure? Azure. Um, Azure. Just say Uh, it simple. Azure. Azure. uh, And that is that they're now issuing non-U.S. IPv4 addresses for content in the U.S. They've run out. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so their blog said some Azure customers may have noticed that for a VM deployed in a U.S. region, when they launched a localized page on a web browser, it may redirect them to an international site. The following explains why this may be happening. This is, of course, written in Microsoft, cautious speak. Um, IPv4 address space has been fully assigned in the United States. Wow. Meaning that there is no additional IPv4 address space available. This requires Microsoft to use IPv4 address space available to us globally globally for the addressing of new services. The result is that we will have to use IPv4 address space assigned to a non-US region, and I got the idea from reading some examples that this was Brazil, uh, to address services which may be in a US region. It is not possible to transfer registration because the IP space is allocated to the registration authorities by the Internet um, Assigned Numbers Authority, the IANI. Um, and so, and then with the, this sort of goes on to explain that um, they're going to do what they can to work with the various IP geolocation services to update the geolocation tables. Because apparently, what's what this, you know, this arose because people were you know setting up microsoft hosted azure servers and we're being told they weren't in the US because people were were geolocating the IP and it was coming up in other countries and microsoft says uh yeah cuz we ran out of ipv4 space in the US so uh yes still more pressure to uh to to move the world to ipv6 when all of these problems go away. And uh, there's been another credit card breach of unknown size. Brian Krebs picked up on it very quickly. I, I, I saw his tweet when, when, and this was the day before, in fact, he may have been the original source of, of the news, even to the US Secret Service, because he spotted thousands of newly stolen cards appearing for sale on one of the underground stolen credit card selling sites, which he monitors, and it quickly became clear that these were all related to the P.F. Chang's Chinese restaurant. Uh, a, a P.F. Chang's has 204 restaurants, uh, branches globally. Uh, they're in the U.S., Puerto Rico, Mexico, Canada, Argenti- uh, Argentina, Argentina, uh, Argentina, Chile, Argentina. I don't know what's wrong with me today. Argentina, <laughs> I've got too many syllables. Argentina, yes. Uh, Chile and the Middle East. Uh, banks have been contacted. Uh, I guess it sounds like Brian. Uh, apparently, what happened is several hundred pages, or, or or the first hundred pages, were made available. He said the advertisement on. Uh, the online underground shop uh, it was is being sold under the so-called Ronald Reagan batch. It's, that's what it's called. They just give it a name. This is the Ronald Reagan batch of credit cards, uh, which does not list the total number of cards that are for sale. Um, instead, uh, just the first hundred pages of at approximately fifty cards per page. So five thousand cards have been published. And the asking price is in the range from $18 to $140 per card. Uh, Brian wrote that many factors can influence the price of an individual card, such as whether the card is Visa or American Express. Platinum, business cards tend to fetch higher prices uh, than the classic or the standard cards and so forth. And I imagine like how much time left before the card expires on an expiration date and so forth. But um, so banks have been contacted w- using the credit card numbers. They can figure out wh- who the issuers are. And it looks like uh, P.F. Chang's locations in Florida, Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Nevada and North Carolina have been affected um, w- because P.F. Chang's has no idea. What has happened? They have shut down credit card processing throughout their entire organization and have gone back to those fondly remembered mechanical uh, credit card imprinters. Um, It's really interesting. They just they're not they don't know what to trust. They don't know where the breach is. The U.S. Secret Service is involved, um, but their decision has just been stop processing and so now you, you know, you give the, your, your credit card to the, uh, server who goes back and goes ka chink ka you know, puts the, the multi-part, uh, carbon slips in and brings that back to you to sign and add your tip to, and then they yank out, you know, the, the middle and give it to you and, and they keep the top and the bottom copies. So... Uh, that's what they're doing now, chain wide, until they they figure out what's happened.
0: You know, the real flaw here, and it's, it speaks to the topic of the show today, is that the authentication for these is so weak. Your signature, like that, somehow authenticates it. You know, oh, yeah. A well, in
1: of fact, sig- we know that signature means absolutely nothing. Yeah. Uh, you can just like do I you know? In fact, there have been times when like I'm splitting the tab w- with friends and it's dark. They'll just say, you know, you know, sign mine, and I'll just you know yeah. do some scrawl. Nobody I mean, checks no that. No one cares. No, no
0: one knows. So yeah. and then they've tried to use that uh, that three digit number on the back of the card as some form of identification or ident- right. uh, authentication. But that's it's weak authentication. That's the problem. Well, All you really need is problem, those numbers.
1: Well, and what's worse is that. While the card um, will have it physically printed on it, and it's not in the mag stripe, um, it's like online purchases. You're right. having to put that in all the time. Well, That's
0: how you... All the bad guys have card makers. That's I mean, I know that because I saw that movie. Yeah. With Melissa McCarthy, the identity thief. They all have the makers that make the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the I problem mean, with, yeah. of course, I mean- this paper slip method is now your credit card is completely visible... Uh, you know, in this stack of papers, right? Who's controlling that? Right. That whole thing is terrible. Yeah. Well,
1: and 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 you know, the argument is that chip and pin will solve the problem. What what chip and pin does? I mean, it's it's an improvement over not having any card based authentication. But if there was a problem, you'd still fall back to this. I mean, th- this is still. Your, your fallback position, um, and at some point, authentication happens. And after that point, then your data has been authenticated and vulnerable. Yeah. So it, it's, you know, it, we're, we're, we're asking the system to do a lot for us, uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't do it all perfectly. Um, I wanted to just make a mention in a couple of miscellaneous things. The I was really very pleased to see that the cover of next week's Time magazine has two words. Eat butter. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's going to be a
1: bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a big a big shaved piece of butter kind of curled up like you see in fancy restaurants when they bring you sort of like these large butter curls on a plate and it just says eat butter wow and uh it, it that's the cover of the june 23rd time magazine and the story is ending the war on fat because the I mean boy this <laughs> the things move slowly I mean anyone who's been interested in finding the truth, has been able to do the research for a long time. Of course, I famously, we, we did the Over the Sugar Hill uh, podcast years ago uh, when I stumbled my way into ketosis and thought, what has it just happened to me? And did the research to figure it out that it's sugar and carbohydrates that are causing all of the problems and that all of this advice that has been you know just pounded into us for decades has been completely wrong and that in fact there's nothing wrong with saturated fat and so now they're like looking at this again thinking well you know this whole low fat high carb thing hasn't working out too well because you know uh, the the levels of diabetes is just skyrocketing there was that that was in the news like 2 weeks ago and uh, and it turns out that it is carbohydrate which induces your liver to produce the very low-density lipoproteins, which are the easiest to oxidize and thus create plaque on arterial endothelial walls. So, it turns out it's not eating fat. It's eating something that's absolutely not fat, that's essentially sugar, uh, you know, starch, and that creates arterial fat. So, Yeah. Anyway, if anyone's interested, cover of Time magazine next week. Um, Also, uh, for those who have been watching, the one science fiction series that seems to be hanging on is Falling Skies. And it begins its fourth season uh, this coming weekend uh, with a third season marathon. Maybe it even goes back further than the third season. I I just noticed that it was back-to-back episodes Coming up to the the premiere of season four, so I didn't want anyone to miss it. I'm I'm watching it. You know, none of this stuff is Star Trek: Next Generation, uh, or Battlestar Galactica, Caliber. We just, you know, those are just so few and far between. But frankly, I, of all of the low budget sci-fi, uh, I'm liking Falling Skies. Enough to, you know, have stayed with it, and uh, and there's enough icon, enough eye candy, m- you know, me- mechanical and alien and stuff, special effects. It's like, okay, I'll I'll keep watching. Um, and I have to say, Leo, after the third episode, there is no series better named than <laughs> Halt and Catch Fire. <laughs> oh terrible it is so awful oh. it is so bad Uh-oh. it is it is you know I'm sorry I kept mentioning it hoping that it might be good but I but you know and the consensus is generally I get people who tweet me just groaning it's like oh I go I, uh, I okay I'll, I'll be watching it tonight I haven't seen it yet but yeah um, you know it's not for us they It. it you know if it was a drama about anything else I would have never even picked up on it, but it was going to be about computers, except it's not. I mean, the jargon is misused. I don't, I, I, you know, it's not really really not worth even giving any more time of the podcast to, because it, it's just awful. Um, so for, for what it's worth, uh, for those people who were watching and thinking, what was Steve thinking? It's like, well, I, I was just not wanting us to miss it if it was good. And now we know, halt and catch fire perfectly named. Um, now I I wanted to give a squirrel update because I just spent the last week doing something unexpected. Um, I had an email dialogue with someone who's working on his master's thesis, named, thesis named Ralph, um, who Friday before last, uh, we had some correspondence. He had some questions. Be- oh, I'm sorry. He's doing his master's thesis on Squirrel. Um, so he had some questions. A- and and I've heard from a number of, of people who are doing similar things. So it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting and popular topic and makes a cool uh, topic for a master's thesis, I think. Uh, and he's creating an implementation on Android uh, f- as part of this. And so we, we had some dialogue back and forth. And he asked me, he said, could you put in a, a switch in the storage format to allow for something other than OCB? Uh, OCB is an authenticated encryption mode. Uh, it's the, and I've talked about it before. I've been enamored of it for years because it's the best. And, you know, I want to go with the best. The problem is it's patented. Actually, I think there's like four patents covering it. But when I wanted to use it for CryptoLink, which is where this first came up, I wrote to its inventor, Phil Rogaway at UC Davis. He's a cryptographer and has been very involved in authenticated encryption. And he said, oh, Steve, it was never my intention to profit from, you know, like little software development firms like, or people like you, of course, you're free to use it for your, uh, uh, cryptographic, you know, VPN solution. So I had a free license to use it. And, um, Ralph liked something called GCM, which is, which I didn't know as much about (laughs) then as I do now, because I spent the week writing an implementation of GCM, uh, at, for public domain, all open source, all cross platform. It's now been a, it's been compiled on Windows and Mac, uh, uh, on Android, in a bunch of Unixes, uh, on iOS seven and eight beta. So, and, and this was a chunk of code that I had to write in C because it had to be portable. You know, I'm writing a client just for Windows, so that I could write an Assembler, which is where I'm still the most comfortable. But when I looked around, there was no cross-platform, openly licensed implementation of GCM. They were all GPL'd in one flavor or another. And while some people will be creating GPL-licensed clients and server-side code for Squirrel, um, I'm going to publish probably all my source that's useful, but not technically GPL'd. Um, and I had a free license. I'm sure that Philip would have never asked me or had a problem with me using it, which is why I was planning to actually use OCB for Squirrel. But, but Ralph made the point that, that, you know, this was a patented technology that I was wanting to put in an absolutely free and open public domain protocol that had – that where all the other crypto is explicitly public domain. All of Dan Bernstein's Curve public key stuff that I'm using, um, uh, the S-Crypt, uh, uh, PBKDF2 uh, – I'm trying to think uh, – the Tarsnap guy, Colin Percival uh, did – all public domain, free to use, and I just didn't like the idea. After Ralph pointed me at it, that that I would ha- that there would be this issue of squirrel storage container using patented technology, you know, open as Philip has tried to make it. Uh, there's there's a there's a GPL license. There's even a commercial but non-military license except that you know how could somebody who wanted to use squirrel for in a commercial setting guarantee that it would never be used by the military so anyway it just see it got to be a mess and what was really interesting was as i was looking at this just The okay, so OCB is better, and I'll get into a little bit about why later on when we talk about authenticated encryption. But that's why I wanted to use it. It is the best solution. Everybody agrees. Everybody has looked at it. Nobody else has used it because of the patents. And I don't know what the backstory is. I I know that that. Being in the UC system, I know from personal experience. You, you know, know exactly,
0: yeah. <laughs> in fact, that's why I'm surprised that you took the guy's uh, word for it. I mean, doesn't UC have to weigh in too? Yeah. Don't they, I, don't they well, have a patent? I mean, maybe, maybe he's being a little... The way, the, way, the way it works is, the
1: as I found out when I was at Berkeley, is the regents of the state of California own the intellectual property created by all of their faculty and students yeah and so it's nice of him to
0: give you permission but he may not have had uh, jurisdiction
1: so what's happened (laughs) yes so as you look over time because this has been around philip did this like 10 years ago and everyone wants to use it but nobody does because they're just not sure So I thought, you know, for Squirrel, I can't use it either. Sad as that is, if I ever do CryptoLink, I may go back to it. But some weird things have happened in the meantime, like Intel added an instruction that specifically performs the wacky multiplication that this GCM requires. And so... What I really think, when history is written and we look back on OCB, it will be that despite the fact that it was the best, because there was this uncertainty about a patent, about intellectual property, the, the industry moved past it. And then people like Intel added instructions to make the these solutions that weren't as fast, now faster. And essentially, the window of opportunity closed.
0: So, Well, in seven uh, years, the patent expires, and then you can use it again.
1: True, true. Um, but again, I think this is the kind of thing where we will have solved this problem. Right. And in fact, I'm going to be talking a little bit about crypto competitions. And, and because there is an there is an ongoing competition now for like the sort of the a a portfolio they're calling it. They're not going to choose a single cipher the way the AES competition chose Rijndael as the next generation cipher standard. They recognize m- more now that one solution doesn't really fit all possible applications. So they're going to spread it around. So anyway, um i I spent uh seven or eight days in back in c where I haven't been for a long time creating a a portable uh c code anyone who's curious it's already posted up on g r. c although I got some feedback from some guys with other platforms than I had um who have like added a make file and added uh, so, some more platform-independent header stuff. So I will shortly be, probably after the podcast, merging that work and then updating my stuff. But it's all there under implementation aids, or there's a, a page uh, in, in the Squirrel site for anyone who's curious. Um, NIST, uh, the National Institutes uh, Institute of Standards and Technology, has published, uh, because, because GCM, which I chose, which is Galois, counter mode that we'll be talking about a little bit more. Uh, because that is an NIST standard, they published a set of six files containing containing what's known as test vectors. That is, this is here's a key, here's a plain text, here's authenticated text. What should the answer be? What should the ciphertext be? What should the authentication tag be? That kind of thing. The idea is there. it's a test suite for validating an implementation. And so after writing an implementation, which I'm tickled to say is 5K, um, a little 5K library, um, uh, because there's lots of tricks that could be performed also, uh, I then wrote a validation test using their six files, uh, a Perl code that compiles that into a binary. Then the binary gets read and it does 47,250 different tests against the my implementation. And of course, it passes them all. So uh, we now have in the public domain, license-free for everyone to use, Uh, An implementation of GCM. Uh, And I'll explain what that is here in a minute. I got a neat note from Bruce Behrens, who is in Virginia Beach. Uh, And he, he called it a testimonial slash comment. He said, hi, Steve. I wanted to let you know that I finally bought a copy of Spinrite. My wife's old Vista desktop was intermittently crashing and giving her the blue screen of death. I decided Spinright was worth a try. And he said, And I've enjoyed the podcast since 2006. I ran Spinright, I think on level two first, and then on level four. And it didn't report any problems or miraculous recoveries at all. But, on the other hand, there has not been a single problem since. My wife suspects A wasted purchase, which wouldn't bother me in the least since, as I said, I've enjoyed the podcast since 2006. But I'm not sure. What do you think? Regards, Bruce. And Bruce and everyone, we we run across this all the time. Um, Unfortunately, not all of what Spinrite does, it's able to show because... SpinWright works with the drive to help it find problems and drives are meant to be autonomous they're they, you know new drives have brains and so they're intended just to work just and to solve all their problems themselves which means as we were talking about error correction just to correct errors and not bother us not even notify us if they're doing that, and to swap out bad sectors when they encounter them, and not bother us. Here we have a situation where that autonomy was failing. The drive was obviously no longer solving its own problems autonomously. Those were surfacing in the form of crashes and blue screens of death. That is, the drive was just, it was dying, and, you know, in, for one reason or another, something about the data that the drive was encountering would cause it to go offline or generate, you know, return gibberish and the, the system would react by crashing. So, for, so I would think that it was the level four scan, the second one that, that Bruce did, that probably did the trick because that one reads the data Inverts it, writes it back, reads it, verifies it, inverts it, writes it back, and reads it again. Really giving the the drive an exercise and every possible opportunity, essentially to refresh the storage of the data on the drive. Whereas level two is a it's a very sensitive read pass. It's much faster because it's doing much less work, but it doesn't have the advantage of literally remagnetizing. Every single bit on the drive, which is you know level four's claim to fame. so that probably basically just it just sort of went, went over and just sort of replowed <laughs> the the drive surface and got all the data settled back down. So I would argue uh, not a wasted purchase purchase because it did in fact fix the problem, and we probably know why.
0: We're going to uh, come back in a second and talk about uh, the matter of the moment, which is encryption authentication. Before we do though, real quickly, I'd like to talk about another kind of encryption that protects you and your your data when you're in a sketch place, that like an open Wi-Fi access point, for instance, or just in your house, given that today the ISP can see pretty much anything you do. That's called ProXPN, and we are big fans. ProXPN is an open VPN hosting solution. So You can do OpenVPN. You can host it yourself if you're really, you know, technically savvy. Somebody like Steve can do that. I've tried. It's not easy. (laughs) Not at all. Uh, But really, in a way, having a hosted uh, OpenVPN solution might offer some better features. For instance, because ProXPN is not just in the U.S., but also in Amsterdam and Singapore and London, you can emerge on the public Internet from that OpenVPN tunnel, uh, you know, in other locations around the world. It eliminates geographic restrictions in many cases. You don't have to ever worry about somebody snooping because everything you're doing is encrypted. It goes through an encrypted tunnel right over to, to a ProXPN's servers. Um, it is a really good solution for hosted open VPN. ProXPN.com slash Twitter if you want to find out more. They now accept payment through not only Visa and PayPal, but Bitcoin too, which means they don't know who you are either. I like that. Complete online privacy through a 512-bit encryption tunnel using uh, 2048-bit encrypted keys. Um, Their software for Windows and Mac offers advanced controls. You could use it on the desktop, too. Select ports, connected startup, even select which programs could be shut down if your anonymous connection should be interrupted, if you know what I mean. ProXPN also has great Android and iOS apps. Means you can use your data plan or the Wi-Fi, public Wi-Fi you're on, with complete and total privacy on the go. In fact, that new Open, that new Pro VPN app on uh, the uh, Google Play Store supports Open VPN as well. They do PPTP for devices that won't, but you're gonna love it. I, it's a really great solution. Now they do have a free trial, but I suggest you take a look at the premium account because in effect you could try it free. You can cancel anytime in the first seven days for a full refund, so you could try it free. And we've got a special offer. Normally ten dollars a month, seventy-five bucks a year. If you want to, uh, if you want to do the Pro plan, we've got a twenty percent discount—not for the first month or year, but forever, for the lifetime of your account. When you use the offer code SN20, so visit ProXPN.com/twit. Read all about it. Check it out. Get the apps. Get the uh, the the programs, whatever you need, and get on there and do it proxpn.com slash twit and make sure you use the offer code SN20 to save 20%. That makes it less than five bucks a month on the yearly plan. proxpn.com slash twit. You know, I'm wondering
1: if you can get on from Argentina Argentina is probably one of those places
0: you can get uh, out from. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. I wonder if Argentina has any IPv4 space. I called it Canadian once. I understand. <laughs> I really do. I know how these things happen. Uh, you've been watching too much of the World Cup, obviously. Oh, goodness. So uh, what is so, what is this this in uh, authentication for encryption you're talking about here?
1: So, so we under we've talked about encryption often and. And we've, we, we've talked about how, for example, a, a, a block cipher like the, the AES standard, which is Reindahl, takes any combination of 128 bits and under the influence of a key, converts them into a different pattern of 128 bits. And what's so cool is that, that if, you, if you even just put a counter on the input, if, if the 128 bits were just a counter, the where, you know, like 000001, 0000010, 0000011, you know, just binary counting what comes out despite something so predictable and even barely changing you know one you know only a few bits are changing every count what comes out is cryptographically strength pseudo random that is absolute gibberish all the bits changing half the time as the counter counts i mean absolutely no detectable pattern and you can and it's keyable that is As, as for example, as this counter counts, one sequence comes out, which is completely pseudo-random. But if you change the key, you get an absolutely different sequence coming out. So as as a module, as a black box, this cipher is just really neat. Now, we've also covered on previous podcasts that encrypting something is not as simple as simply taking the so-called plain text and in, in the case of, for example, this Reindahl cipher, which is 128 bits, that's 16 bytes, 16 8-bit bytes. So you can't simply take your thing to be encrypted in 16-byte chunks and feed each one in and, and be secure with the output every block of 16 will get changed into something pseudo random but if you ever put the same block of 16 from like later on in the plain text it would translate into the same pseudo random block and that's not good Because that represents some some leakage of information. Even though, you know, bad guys scrutinizing the so-called cipher text, which would be the, you know, the, the, the enciphered version of the plain text. Even though they wouldn't instantly know anything, if they found repetitions of 16 bits, I'm sorry, of 16 byte blocks within they would know there were repetitions in the plain text. Information is leaking, and that makes cryptographers very uncomfortable. So the next evolution of of this was the addition of so-called modes. So, so for example, a mode of encryption is called counter-mode. Where you do just like I was suggesting in that example, you take a, a, a block cipher like AES and you give it a counter. You put it you and, and in fact you might use an initialization vector as like the starting value of this counter, so that that changes with each message, and we'll talk about that that being important in a second. But the point is that this counter would be encrypted and produce 128 bits output then you xor those with the plain text to get cipher text and we've talked about the xor operation before how how it's really interesting it's it's also known as carryless addition because essentially it's the each, each bit bit by bit is added But you don't carry from two ones being added, which gives you a binary two, which is a one zero. You don't carry that one. All you get, all is left over is the zero. So the XOR operation is, you can think of it as an OR of either bit, but not both. That is why it's called exclusive OR. It's exclusive of both. OR carryless addition. Um, but what's interesting about it is, if you and as as contrary to to like intuition as it is, if we simply XOR plain text where the what what we're XORing is random, what we get out is unbreakable. It's it, it there's even though it's a simple operation to perform, as long as we're exclusive ORing with something that is a secret. It, the result is unbreakable. And what's interest, also interesting, and, and, and really think about what we've done. All we've done is we've inverted some of the bits of the input. That's all XOR does is essentially it, it's a conditional inversion of the input data. and But that's why when you XOR the ciphertext again with the same random noise you get back your plain text because it, again, it conditionally reinverts the same bits and you're back to where you started. So, so a mode is known as counter mode where we would take 16, 16 byte blocks of plain text and successively XOR them with the output of the block cipher as the input is counted and it simply counts along and the cipher generates its random noise under the influence of the key and we XOR our plain text and get out cipher text. And, and that's really good encryption. Now, one very important caveat is that we never reuse the same sequence of pseudo random noise with the same key cuz that breaks the security of this instantly and as i was saying the initialization vector might be the starting count of the counter and so the point is you would you would want to make sure that you had strong guarantees about the initialization vector and the, that you, you not only had different ones, but you didn't have overlapping ranges. So, so, you, so these modes have to be used carefully. So there's an example of, of taking a, a cipher and, and understanding what the limitations are and then adding some algorithm to it, these modes in order to make up for some of the deficiencies of just using the cipher by itself. And I know that anyone who's poked around uh, the net may have seen some famous... There's a famous picture of of modeless encryption that is making the mistake of not using a mode where where you take the famous Linux Penguin and you encrypt it with like a really good cipher, like AES, with a secret key. And... The result is a picture. And even though the color is gone and it's washed out, you still see the outlines of the Linux penguin. I mean, he survived. Um, So thus, information leaked out. Um, And so it's a classic and perfect example of why you have to, you can't use a cipher by itself. Well, as this as this technology started being looked at more closely and used cryptographers realized they still had a problem that is even using various modes another common one we've talked about often is cipher block chaining cbc um the, the, that that first example counter mode it just is ctr uh, in terms of its three-letter acronym, this was a CBC uh, cipher block chaining. There, you take your initialization vector and XOR it with the plain text. Then you encrypt it with a block cipher, and that gets your cipher, your enciphered code. And then you take that o- output from the first block operation, and you X, you use it as the input of, for the XOR of, with the plain text of the second block operation, forming a chain, thus cipher block chaining and and the advantage there is you create a dependency on all of the future ciphers of cipher operations from the past. and specifically, you absolutely break this the the um, the the phenomenon, where duplicated blocks of plain text end up being duplicated in the ciphertext. That won't happen. You'll get no Penguin picture. You just get absolute static. Penguin in, you know, absolute static out. That's a very good mode of encryption. But what researchers discovered was that if you changed, if an attacker had access to... This process, the, the cipher decryption online, in an online attack, they could still get up to some mischief. And a perfect example um, is, is going back to cipher blockchaining. Um, the, the first thing that is done is the initialization vector is XORed with the plain text and then it is encrypted. Well, that means the reverse has to happen for decryption. The cipher text runs through the block cipher and then that output is XORed with the initialization vector to get the plain text. What that means is that if an attacker changed some bits in the initialization vector, they're flipping bits in the first block of plain text. That gives them power. They they even, I mean, if, if this may, for example, this might be a well-known protocol. Um, it might be HTTP or SMTP or a protocol where the format in the header or in the first 16 bytes, is fixed or known. And imagine, then, if they know the first 16 characters and could at will change them to be exactly anything else they want. They could dramatically change the meaning of the rest of the message. And obviously, that can't be allowed to stand. And cipher blockchaining happens to be one of the most popular um in cryptographic modes we have so the danger is very real so if the attack is offline that is if there's no way for an attacker to mess with the encrypted data then there isn't as compelling a case for authenticated encryption but if the, if if the if there, if you are sending encrypted contents online from point a to point b and there's any chance that a bad guy could modify that data we have to we have to authenticate it that is we have to prevent it from being changed or rather detect any change since we would argue we can't prevent it once it's left, it can get changed. The best we can do then is to, to, to robustly detect any change. So, so the cryptographers got together and thought, okay, you know, what's the? We understand the need. What do we do about this? Well, the concept of a message authentication code, a MAC, MAC, has been around, for, had been around for a while, and the the technology on MAC. Uh, composition had been evolving, and so they said, "Okay, well, this seems pretty simple, right? We want to add a message authentication code to the encrypted data." Then they there was some question about, oh, "Wait a minute, okay, we, if we have plain text, and we know we want to do two things to it, we want to we want it to be encrypted, and we want it to be authenticated." Which one do we do first? Do we authenticate the plain text and then encrypt all that and so that when we decrypt it then we authenticate that what's decrypted hasn't been changed? Or do we encrypt it first and then authenticate the encrypted thing and send that? And so they talked about that for a while. And it turns out there were it wasn't much competition. The, the absolute agreement is you encrypt, then you MAC. The argument is that you should never find yourself in a position of being sort of tricked into decrypting data that may have been changed. So if we MAC inside of the encryption, we're going to be decrypting the envelope. And it's just... Cryptographers don't like that. They so so the constructions of these authenticated encrypted modes are such that if the authentication fails, you abs you just stop. You don't you do not decrypt under any circumstances. You 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 because it's dangerous. You just you don't know what the bad guys could have gotten up to. Maybe they found a a buffer overflow, God help us, in the decryptor, like in the decryption code. And so they've made a modification that if we were to decrypt it, would give them control of the system. The point is, no. If it is not authentic, stop. So so for a while, that was what we were doing. And, you know, when we talk about um, the various SSL cipher modes and how how the names of the modes are are formed from you know uh aes 128 uh none, none are coming to mind but you know then then sha1 or sha256 or whatever th- this is th- this is encryption which is then authenticated so so th- this concept we've had for quite a while, that we we need to protect the contents or the, the, the results of the encryption, the contents of the encrypted envelope itself, and if we detect tampering, don't go any further. Absolutely just say, oh, wait, there seems to have been a problem, but could you send that packet to me again? Or whatever is appropriate for the circumstance. Okay, so... Let's we'll take a little segue here to talk about the history of cryptographic competitions. Because that's the way, it, it's competitions, which is the way, it's sort of the solution that the industry has organically arrived at for coming up with the best standards. Uh, famously, it's where we got Reindahl as the AES standard, uh, that has become now so popular and displaced things like Triple DES, uh, which was heavily used uh, in, in the past. Um, uh, Rindal is this AES competition is a result of an original announcement made by uh, NIST uh, on January second of ninety seven, and the goal was to come up with a block cipher they knew they know that it needed 128 bits we were moving from a world of 68 bit block ciphers and everyone was beginning to feel uncomfortable there just weren't enough bits in the block remember that that a, a block cipher simultaneously maps all of its input bits bits <laughs> into different output bits using this a, a keyed one-to-one mapping between a combination of input and a combination of output. But the question is how many combinations there are of input as drives become ridiculously fast as hashing engines uh, and har- and custom hardware becomes ridiculously inexpensive. it You know, 64 bits just stop seeming like enough possible combinations. So Always being conservative, we doubled it to. I mean, even though 64 was still working, we doubled it to 128 bits, saying that's all we're going to need for quite a while. Keys are different. Keys are are inherently ephemeral, and and depending upon their usage, may need, we may need more bits for them. Um, but the block length, due to the the security guarantees that the cipher gives us, 128 bits. Tends to be plenty. So that so NIST said we need a 128-bit cipher for safety. It we'd like it to have key lengths of 128-bits, 100, 192, and 256 bits, so that we get some some future proofing. Um, we're gonna compare it against all of the submissions, all of the challenges will be compared against each other. We're going to, we want to compare it against how a random function behaves to see how close it is to random because really close would be good. We, it needs to, we're going to examine them for their mathematical basis, for any other security factors that may arise as a result of just the general community getting more familiar with this problem. Uh, we're going to evaluate them in terms of cost, the licensing requirements, uh, for example, it needs to be available on a worldwide, non-exclusive, royalty-free basis. Co- another factor of cost is the computational efficiency. Is it? You know, can it be implemented in hardware, in smart cards, in inexpensive uh, places? So, so, so there's, there's not only financial cost, but implementation cost. Um and then the algorithm and implementation characteristics. How flexible is it with key size and block size, and it, maybe its suitability for other applications, like use as a stream cipher or as a component of a message authentication code, or maybe a pseudo random number generator or a hash, uh, as, as like a core function in a hash. And is it simple? Because if you know, it needs to be simple so that people can actually write it and implement it and and have it work robustly. So this was announced in 97, the competition was all academics from all over the place poured their designs in and then in a series of deadlines and conferences they they broke many, many were withdrawn, some were revised and improved um in through several rounds they reduced it. And finally, on October 7th, I'm sorry, October 2nd of the year 2000, uh, NIST announced that the agreement among all of the judges of all of these uh, contestants was Reindahl, which was a sort of a funky concatenation of the last names of the designers. Um, and I want to say they were Brazilian. I think they were. Um, <laughs> Brazil seems to be in, in the air today. Um, so since then, there have been other competitions, uh, which I mean, th- this is like th- Reindahl worked really well. And the industry decided, hey, this concept works. So there is currently an eStream cipher, um, which, well, uh, e- eStream was the, 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 the question was, we want to come up with a very fast stream cipher as opposed to a block cipher. Um, we've had stream ciphers before. Famously, we've talked about RC4, uh, which was the cipher used in the early version of, of uh, Wi-Fi. RC4 was incredibly elegant, very efficient, easy to implement in software. Uh, it was patented, and it's secret but the patent did run out uh and you know now everyone knows how to do RC4 then there's RC5 and 6 and i think 8 um anyway so um uh these these competitions are the way now uh we are we're settling on Next generations of these major components that we're using in cryptography. There is the stream cipher competition. There is currently a password hashing competition underway. Uh, it's password-hashing.net, and you know password storage has been a constant uh, topic for this podcast. Um, the 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 site and the organizers of the competition said that the password hash- hashing competition is an effort organized to identify new password hashing schemes in order to improve on the state of the art, which they regard as PBK, DF2, S-script, etc., and to encourage the use of strong password protection. Applications include, for example, authentication to web services, PIN, Authentication on mobile devices, key derivation for full disk encryption or private key encryption, all the stuff that we talk about. And, you know, we talk about how many iterations of a hash, a password goes through before it gets stored. And, you know, we've been talking about this topic um, through the podcast for years. Um, So. Twenty four submissions have been accepted of completely brand-new password-hashing constructions. Um, uh, in 2013, the first quarter of last year, was the call for submissions. Then in March, at the end of March this year, 2014, was the submission deadline. Um, by the third quarter of this year, there that the finalists will have been chosen. And the goal is by the second quarter of next year, 2015, there will be the selection made of one or more pass- password hashing schemes, and and they now have 24 submissions um, at this point, so that that have been accepted. So they'll they'll over the course of the next year, essentially to about this time next year, they will whittle this down. Uh, break them, withdraw them, improve them, and we'll see what we get. Um, One of the other competitions, which has been started, it was announced at the beginning of last year, January 15th, 2013, is known as the CAESAR competition, C-A-E-S-A-R, which is the acronym or the abbreviation for competition competition, for authentic, incri- Authenticated Encryption, Security, Applicability, and Robustness. So they had to stretch a little bit to get this, the uh, acronym to work. But Caesar is the competition that is most new, started um, uh, beginning of last year. The first deadline round of submissions was March 15th of this year. So the contestants had, what, I guess about uh, 14 months from the beginning of, from January of 2013 to March of 2014, or yeah, um, 14 months, Um, 57 entrants, uh, a handful have already been withdrawn or modified since. And their tentative final announcement is, I mean, there'll be many rounds of, of competition, uh, uh, judging. They know how long this takes. It's just not something you can do overnight. And this is important. This is to come up with an authentic, authenticated encryption standard. And again, maybe not a single one, the way we had a single Reindahl, uh, Cipher chosen for AES, but they're talking in terms of a portfolio, recognizing that because needs vary, some will be applicable um, in some cases and, and others elsewhere. And maybe some will be like more strong, but slower, where we don't need that much strength today, but it'll be nice to have it thoroughly checked out and ready. And maybe even you know, implemented in cipher suites, but not yet deployed because there just isn't that much need for such you know large blocks or or, or key strength. But the only way, the point is, not till December fifteenth of twenty seventeen. So years from now, um, consequently, we can't wait. Uh, we, we will get something in another three and a half years, but. Nothing until then. So so we're having to move forward. And the industry has moved forward. The difference between the the cipher suites that we're used to talking about and authenticated encryption, now I'm using too few syllables, um, is authenticated encryption which is what OCB is and which is what GCM is does everything at once it is not encrypt the it does not encrypt the plain text into a plain text message then in a second pass create an authentication of it by running the the cipher text through a Mac, the whole point of so-called AE, authenticated encryption, is that the encryption is authenticating too. It is a hybrid mode, which is potentially much faster than doing it twice. Um, and many of the good ones are, are known as online modes, meaning that you don't need to know the length of the res- of, of the input in order to compute the output meaning you can you can start feeding the plain text through a black box cipher text is coming out and then when you're finally done and we don't know when that is you say okay this is the end of the message and then The algorithm completes itself and computes at that time an authentication tag, which is a function of everything that came before. Very much like a hash, and we've talked about hashing, which is a function of everything that came before, except this is under the influence of a key. And that's another thing that's different about a single hybrid authenticated encryption mode is... The other ones need separate keys. If you're going to encrypt text and then authenticate it, cryptographers have been very worried about interactions between the, between the two processes if you use the same key. So the, the problem with the separate encryption then authenticate which is what, for example, SSL and TLS are typically using now, is you they have for security, you need separate keying material. The beauty of the of the hybrid authenticated encryption is a single key drives this the whole thing. That's one of the things that I really liked about um, OCB in the beginning, but that is true of the of many of the other modes too. Well, in fact, of all of the authenticated encryption modes, and many of them are online in the sense that you don't need to know the length of what's coming in order to get going, and it's able to tell, you know, whenever it ends, it ends, and that's when you say, okay, we're done, and you compute the authentication tag at the end, which is computed under the influence of the key Everything was being done on um, being done under. So uh, these AE modes, they've been researched now for about ten years. and interestingly, it's Phil Rogaway, the inventor of OCB and patenter, unfortunately, of OCB, who's been in the forefront of authenticated encryption. He has designed several other AE modes which actually aren't as good as OCB. Um, maybe he didn't think they qualified for intellectual property protection or maybe they they didn't or he just thought he had something better up his sleeve i don't I don't know the backstory behind why this you know o c b got patented um except that maybe you know he had to demonstrate he was inventing stuff for the regents of the university and so he created some intellectual property and slapped a patent on it in order to prove it so there are a bunch of Existing AE modes—they um, vary in their speed, in their complexity, in uh, that is how complex they are to implement. Um, uh, whether they are wh- whether they are free or not, whether they have patent encumbrance, um, how widely they are used now—that is how well proven. Um, It's becoming very important also to consider whether it can be implemented in hardware because, you know, where hardware is becoming more soft and hardware, custom hardware is blazingly faster than anything you can do algorithmically in software. That's why, for example, hashing when there was incredible pressure by Bitcoin to to move into hardware, it first went into field programmable gate arrays and then into fully custom silicon because that's where you get your speed. But it's certainly possible for, a, for an algorithm to be designed to run in software and be just awful. To implement in a hardware. I mean, you you know, you, you you give this to the hardware guys in the lab and say, okay, we need you to turn this into a chip. And they just look at you and say, Oh, please don't make us. Because it's, you know, whereas some other, some other equally otherwise good and secure solution might just be a cakewalk in hardware, you know, some big lookup table and wires running around in circles, and out comes the answer. So it's so that that's one of the other ways that that, you know, future crypto is being evaluated because we're looking at, for example, the need to encipher speeds that are often, you know, many gigabytes per second, you know, many billions of bytes per second have to be able to be run through a cipher and authenticated on the fly, uh, you know, as that fiber optic, you know, heads under the ocean. So. So there really is a need and a consideration on the hardware side. So, um, and and then of course the other interesting thing is there's this notion of associated data, and this was actually something again that Phil Rogaway pioneered. He said, "Okay, we want to authenticate the cipher text, but what about if we allowed the authentication envelope?" to extend further than what was encrypted into what he called associated data. And so, for example, this is very useful. Things like the header of the packet. Imagine that you could start start your process at the very first byte of the packet, run through all the headers, which have to be kept in plain text, in order for the packet to be routed. That's where your IP is. That's where your port number is and your protocol ID and version and other things that that describe the, the contents that you want to encrypt, the encrypted payload of the packet. But you specifically don't want, you can't encrypt that, but you would like it protected. You would like the tag at the very end to include in a a cryptographically secure sense the non-encrypted header data so that any hacker who tries to mess with that will similarly break the entire packet. So you're protecting even what isn't encrypted. And that's known as associated data. And those ciphers are called AEAD, which is Authenticated Encryption with Associated Data. Um, so, and that was one of the things that I liked about OCB was it did that, but so does the one that the industry has settled on. And that is this so-called Galois, it's, it's spelled G-A-L-O-I-S. And Galois fields are a, are, are a well-known, uh, component of crypto. Um, they're also known as finite fields. We, we've talked about that a lot that, 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 this is the idea that you're doing work within a confined bit length so you're taking bits of a certain length and combining them in some way with maybe bits of the same or other lengths but you're ultimately doing it with what's known within what's known as a finite field which which the short version of that is you only keep the remainder that is, what you do inherently overflows the bit length. And so you say, I don't care about the most significant bits. You keep the least significant bits. You keep the remainder, essentially. So, so in, for example, in, in the fact of this Galois counter mode, it uses a finite field of 2 to the 128, which is to say 2 to the 128 it, or I'm sorry 2 to the 128 is is 128 binary bits and it operates with data that is that size and there's a there's a place where you're doing a a, a, a so-called Galois multiplication where you're multiplying two 128 bit vectors by you know with each other. And we know that multiplication, doubles the length of things. Whenever you multiply two things, you're going to get something up to twice as long. So the result of a, of two, the result of a multiplication of 128 bits with another 128 bit value will be a 256 bit result. This discards the most significant 200 or most significant 128 bits, keeping only the least significant, the lower half, essentially. Um, but there are other modes EAX which is another it that is a two pass um mode uh, also developed uh by 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 Philip he's like i said he's been in this for a long time uh but he wasn't involved in GCM uh and there are some other modes CCM XCBC IAPM CWC and and then of course scores more Coming from the Caesar competition, but we don't get that for three and a half years. So, my need in Squirrel and the industry's need for secure communications with you know where we're in in an we're under increasingly uh, strenuous performance pressure we we have to minimize overhead. We've talked about the the overhead of SSL and encryption and how, you know, being able to cache SSL sessions means we're not having to renegotiate SSL sessions all the time, but we are still having to perform encryption and decryption at each end. We want that to be as fast as possible. So we want to drop the need for a for, for the current modes, which are a round of of encryption and then authentication on the outgoing end, and then a round of authentication followed by decryption on the incoming end, thus hybridizing that into authenticated encryption. So GCM is an NIST standard. Uh it it's been accepted uh into OpenSSL it is in the TLS version 1.2 spec so GCM modes now have assigned numbers and they're in the standard Firefox and Chrome supports them both as as I mentioned as does OpenSSL and it is uh, GCM is also available in IPsec which is the is the standardized IP security which is part of ipv6 and is available on top of ipv4 now so that's pretty much the one that has won the game it is um it is a as the name as the name says galois counter mode the galois is this is abbreviated gf for for galois field or or which is a finite field um, that's the authentication portion. Basically, you use what's called a g hash to hash the initialization vector and the the uh, data, which has been enciphered. Uh, so you so you're basically doing a hash of the cipher and the enciphering is a counter. Um, so it, the the counter, is initialized with the initialization vector, which it likes to have as 96 bits. If you give it a 96-bit IV, initialization vector, it uses those as the top 96 bits of the count. And then the lower 32 bits is a block counter, which starts at 1 and is incremented for every block that you do and one of the limitations of this which is part of the spec and well understood is since we can't ever allow this to repeat we cannot encrypt more than two to the 32 which is four billion blocks of 128 bit data which is a lot but the point being before you get to that point, you just need to rekey you you either rekey or you come up with a new initialization vector that is a, a new upper ninety six before you allow that lower thirty two bits to wrap otherwise that gets fed into the cipher that gets xored with your plain text to create the cipher text and that means that decryption is very much the same that is you you also use AES encryption to produce the same the the, the same key stream, which you then XOR with a ciphertext to get your plaintext back. That produces the same tag at the end, which has been proven secure by the cryptographers that have looked at it. There is no way to spoof this. So now we have a single pass. Oh, very fast. I I forgot to mention that in 2010, because this was gaining prominence, Intel added an instruction to their standard x86 and uh, x86 and 64 instruction set, which is it, it performs a quarter of the multiplication. You know, you can multiply two things at once or you can multiply halves of them and then add, uh, it was convenient and made more sense to Intel to do this. So they have a bizarre named instruction, which basically it's a 64 by 64 bit instruction that produces a 128 bit result specifically in support of the GCM mode. And of course, we've known for a while they've had the so-called NI instructions, which Contain a number of special instructions that accelerate AES that allow AES, the Reindahl, uh, uh cipher, to be accelerated in software. So we're really seeing hardware, you know, uh, the, the standardized hardware moving towards supporting the standardized protocols. Uh, the protocols are becoming open. They are the- becoming the result of competitions among. Des- designers in the academic and commercial world who publish these things freely, who produce open source, open license. Uh, You know, all the cryptographers pound on each other's work. Collectively, we learn more from that process and whittle down uh, a selection of a few very robust, fundamental kernels of technology wh- which we then use universally uh, on the internet and of course it's only after years of that that we find out that there were some problems that <laughs> no one found and then we go about fixing those so that's authenticated encryption it is the next you know so, sort of the, the the next move forward from the current multi-phase encryption um, I, I had to dig into it because I needed it for Squirrel because I want to protect the, the, any output of Squirrel uh, in barcodes or backup codes and everything has to be encrypted. And we need the authentication in order to verify the one password that the user uses to unlock that in order to uh, verify their identity. So I needed authentication and encryption and wanted to do it the right way. Uh, So, uh, as I said at the, uh, earlier in the podcast, I changed direction because I decided, even though I had Philip's permission, you know, Squirrel had to be bigger than that. It had to have a a universal public domain, completely free, unquestionably open uh, implementation, and uh, now it does.
0: Well, that's a relief. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Gibson is at GRC.com. That's the place where you'll find the uh, Spinrite, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. You'll also find uh, 16 kilobit versions of this show, transcripts, and, of course, the forums and a very active community talking about Squirrel and other things. If you've got a question, if uh, you know the Internet allows, we'll have a question and answer episode next week. And uh, you can leave those questions at gr- GRC.com slash Feedback. We have uh, 64 kilobit audio and high def as well as SD video of the show available at our site, twit.sn. And wherever podcasts are aggregated or you could use our apps, watch live because we do it every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2000 UTC on twit.tv. But you can also get after uh, the fact on-demand audio and video as always. The apps are great for that, too. Thanks, Steve. We'll catch you uh, next week. Thanks, Leo on security now security.